Okay, so we're going to go into the word today. Today is Christmas Sunday. Uh, tomorrow is Christmas Eve, and the day after that is Christmas Day. So happy Christmas, everyone. Can you turn to the person right next to you, maybe give them a high five and say you made it through the year. Congratulations. 2019 is almost here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow. Everybody's like, you made it through the year. You made it through the year. Congratulations. It has been one crazy year for a lot of people. Um, all right. So last week, uh, I talked about the power of promise and how important it is for us to have a promise that carries us through the season of waiting and the sacrifices that need to, made in uh, need to be made in between. So, for example, we watched a, 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 small, a short video about these kids waiting for a marshmallow, right? They have a marshmallow in front of them. They have to wait. I don't know for how long they tortured these kids, but they had to look at this marshmallow and wait until the person came back and then they could get the second marshmallow and they would have two marshmallows. So it's a really, really interesting um, experiment and it talks about a lot of different things, you know, about upbringing, about delayed gratification, self-control, like all those different things. But the point that we made last week was that the, uh, your ability to wait through that season of waiting, it depends on the promise as well. If there was no marshmallow, I guarantee you every kid would have put that marshmallow in their mouth. But because there was a promise of a second marshmallow, they're able to wait through whatever, however many minutes they were asked to wait in order for them to get that prize. That prize looked worth waiting for. And in the same way, we as Christians, we don't just have a marshmallow waiting for us, but we have the promise of Jesus Christ. And that is what the Advent season is about. It's about waiting, not just for a day where we get to unwrap presents, not just for a day where we get to sing Christmas carols, but also we're waiting for Jesus Christ. So um, today we're going to be working off a little bit from that idea. And I wanted to give a disclaimer about today's sermon. So for those of you guys who are practical, who need practical action points at the end. You're going to hate this message. Can I just say that? It's okay for you to hate it because it's not going to be a very practical message for today. It's okay. I'm not a very practical person unless I have to be, but I was reading a book on worship by A.W. Tozer, and he touches on this really um, really important point regarding the necessity for awe and wonder. And so this is what he says. The definition of holy, holy must certainly have room for mystery if in our attempts to worship, we are to have an effective appreciation of our God. There are leaders in various Christian circles who know so much about the things of God that they will offer an answer to every question you may have. We can hope to answer questions helpfully as far as we can, but there is a sense of divine mystery running throughout all of the kingdom of God, far beyond the mystery that scientists discover running throughout the kingdom of nature. There are those who pretend to know everything about God, who present, uh, who present, who present. They can explain everything about God, about his creation, about his thoughts, and about his judgments. They have joined the ranks of the evangelical rationalists. They end up taking the mystery out of life and the mystery out of worship. And when they have done that, they have taken God out as well. The kind of know-it-all attitude about God that we see in some teachers today leaves them in a very difficult position. They must roundly criticize and condemn any other man taking any position slightly different from theirs. Our cleverness and glibness and fluency may well betray our lack of that divine awe upon our spirits, silent and wonderful. 
that breathes a whisper, O Lord God, thou knowest. It's a great reminder for us in our pursuit of God to be reminded that the whole point of pursuing God isn't so that we can just figure him out, so we can diagram him out, so we can dissect him. There's always going to be a sense of, I feel like I learned something about God, but there's so much more that I realize now that I don't understand. And that is because he is God. If there came a point where we can figure him out, that means that he is no longer God and you are. Because you're the one who can figure him out. You're the one who can hold him in the palm of your hands and you can tell exactly what he's going to do, how he acts, what he says, and you have somehow become the God instead of the other way around. So there is always a sense of awe and wonder built into our Christian walk. This is part of the tension that we feel when it feels like we want to know more about God, but then I realize that I don't know about him, so I need to learn more. But then you realize that you don't. And that's like a tension that we're supposed to be walking in all the days of our lives. And this doesn't mean, obviously, this doesn't mean don't study the word, right? It doesn't mean don't seek the truth, just be ignorant. Ignorance and mystery, they're two very, very different things. Ignorance is when you're willfully, all the information is there for you, all the avenues are there for you, and you are just willfully like closing your eyes to that. And that's not the kind of faith that we're called to live. Our God is a God who is self-revealing. He makes himself known to us, and that is part of the gift of who God is. So I'm not saying remain ignorant because everything is a mystery and then you can't really figure this out anyway. That's not the point. The point is, even if we were to pursue our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the days of our lives, even then there's going to be so much that we don't understand about him. And that's part of the beauty of God. So we need to, in our Christian walk, somehow be comfortable with not knowing everything about him. And that's okay. When your friend asks you questions about God and you don't have the answers, that's okay. When your parents or your family members ask you about God and you don't have all the answers, that's okay. You know, mankind has been trying to answer all these questions for all of eternity, you know, and we still don't have everything figured out. And that's a good thing. It means there's more for us to know. Uh, There's more for us to draw close to God about. So what, what Tozer is putting his finger on is that when we approach God and when we approach Scripture, it must be with a sense of awe and wonder, where we actively fight our urge to dissect and control and make everything functional and logical. There's going to be things in the Bible that really don't make sense. Really. Like if you're reading carefully, there's so many things that don't make sense. That's why they are super natural because they're not natural, right? Our God is not an ordinary God. So part of the beauty of God is that he cannot be contained or explained away. And we cannot take things for granted or let over familiarity harden our hearts. So there's more to discover and learn and experience. And so as we read, this is my exhortation for us today, as we read through this passage of Luke um, in Luke two is ask the Lord to give you a new lens of awe and wonder as if this was the first time you were reading it as if this was the first christmas that you were you know celebrating as a believer in luke 2 verses 1 through i believe it's 20 it says in those days 
Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own hometown to register. Do you guys remember last week we talked about how this particular, this thing that seemed very like random, like, oh, you know what? We should take a census. It just happened to be that Joseph and Mary were expecting. It just happened to be that that was how the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That is how it was, it was fulfilled. And that was spoken of hundreds of years before even Caesar Augustus ever breathed uh, here on this earth. And then it continues on to say, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This is supposed to be terrifying. When you have angels appearing all around you, that's supposed to feel terrifying. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they haven't seen anything just yet. They're like, All right, let's see if this checks out, basically is what they're saying. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as, uh, as they had been told. So today's message is about God with us, God, Emmanuel. And this is something that when you've been a Christian for long enough, you begin to take for granted. You're like, yeah, yeah, we know the nativity story. We know exactly how it plays out. I dressed up as Mary or Joseph or one of the shepherds. Or, you know, when I was a kid and I did the whole play, we tend to get so over-familiar with this that we lose that sense of awe and wonder that it rightfully deserves. We ought to be a little bit more like the shepherds. We're like, no way. Like, there's no way this is true. There's no way there's an angel talking to me right now. There's no way that they just went back up to heaven. Okay, now I have to see for myself. There's something about the story that it's, it's not ordinary. It's not normal, even for back then. And for us today, we shouldn't lose the awe and wonder of this again. So when we talk about God with us, you know, last week when we talked about the power promise, um, when we talk about it and we said, when we say that the weight 
The greater the weight and the greater the sacrifice that is required, the greater the promise needed to be in order to carry us through that season of waiting for its fulfillment. When we talk about that, we need to understand that Jesus Christ didn't come into a vacuum. There were prophecies of old told for generations and generations about the Messiah that would come. And there were such specific prophecies that were being fulfilled through this Messiah. The promise of Jesus loses its potency and its impact if we don't see it in the proper context. So, for example, I'm asked to show you um, this picture, right? It's just a glass of water. If you were to try to describe this to me, it's just a glass of water. It's just H2O. Or it's a, 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 a I don't know, how else can you say it? It's just a liquid, uh, you know. This is a glass of water. I don't know. It's because it's outside of the context. Now, this is the same glass of water, but it's in a very different context. Right? All of a sudden, you're like, it's a glass of water in the midst of a desert. And you all of a sudden see its value. See, like, don't you feel thirsty even right now? Just looking at it, right? All of a sudden, that glass of water looks so desirable. And I showed you this other picture. It's the same, you know, it's the same H2O, same thing, you know. But in its proper context, it gains meaning and understanding. And in the same way, when the Son of Man appears on the stage of the world, it is not into an empty vacuum. There is such a cry of desperation and a need by them that he fulfills that we don't fully understand unless we take the time to look through Old Testament prophecy. So this is what we're going to do today. I'm going to nerd out just a little bit. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Great. We talked about last week how the first prophecy of the coming Messiah was not in Matthew. It wasn't even the minor prophets. It wasn't the major prophets. It wasn't the Psalms. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. This is right after Adam and Eve fell. Basically, as soon as that separation was made between God and man, God already promised someone who had put an end to it. And this happens in Genesis. Can you read that? Yes. Genesis, it's a little bit faint. Maybe we can turn up a few more lights, maybe. Yes. Um, so Genesis, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't need to be able to read. Yes. So Genesis <laughs> chapter 3, verse 15, and this is what it says. It says, and I will put enmity. I will put enmity between you, so the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's an offspring that is coming, a son that is coming, that will put an end to this evil, to brokenness, to sin, to pain, to separation from God. And he will crush the serpent's head. And as a result of this, the cry of the human condition, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, is this. Where are you, God, and where is a promised offspring? This is an inbuilt cry that we have in our hearts even when we are not even if we weren't believers we would know that something needs to be made right something is wrong right now something is broken right now that needs to be made right and so the bible shows us that from the very beginning from genesis chapter 3 there is a cry in the human spirit that cries out for god where are you god where is the promised offspring you promised one who would defeat evil, one who would put an end to the separation between God and man. You promise closeness and oneness just like in the Garden of Eden. 
And we want that once again. Where are you, God? Where is the promised seed? Where is the promised son? And this cry runs all throughout scripture. It is not just here and there. It is all throughout scripture. I'm just going to go through a few here. So the, and when we move on to Exodus and they're running through the desert, you hear echoes of it when Israel walks through 40 years through the desert with a promise in mind. They know that they're going towards something. There's a promise that they're walking towards. And whatever that promise is, it's enough to take them through 40 years in the wilderness. When we go through Leviticus and we see the sacrifices that were implemented in the temple, every time that you slaughtered an animal as a burnt offering to God in order to gain temporary access to God's presence, they were reminded once again, I am separated from God. God, I need someone to stand in the gap on my behalf. I need someone's blood to be shed on my behalf. That my relationship with God will be mended. And their need for this offspring of God that wouldn't just be a temporary sacrifice, but one that would be an eternal, permanent sacrifice that would grant them access to God. That cry was there every time they performed a sacrifice. When we look through the book of Joshua, and they're going into that promised land that was spoken of to Abraham as they fight their enemies that are already occupying that land, as they're fighting these people that are keeping them from the promise, and as they step into the promised land spoken of in Genesis, they're reminded of a future promised land where the presence of God will be their light and will be their salvation. We go through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and as we see all these earthly rulers being established, judges, and kings that are ultimately still fallen human beings they're reminded that there's one coming the son of god that will make all things right we go to the book of nehemiah we see how he embarks on the mission to rebuild the city walls of jerusalem it is their longing for god's promised presence the temple that drives them to restore the city walls when we look through the book of esther Queen Esther stands in the gap on behalf of a people who were doomed to die. They were doomed for genocide. And they were reminded of the promise and their need of a savior. We look through all of the Psalms. You see how God Almighty is exalted. One who is a shield and a fortress and a light and a salvation. One who is mighty in battle. One who is close to the brokenhearted. When they cry out all these praises, when they sing out all these praises, they're coming from a place of longing for God. This eternal question, where are you, God? Where is the promised son? When we look through the book of Proverbs, you see how wisdom calls out from the street corners and wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. When you go through the book of Song of Songs, you see a beloved that comes leaping over the mountains on behalf of his beloved. This is also a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the eternal bridegroom. We look through Isaiah and we read about the suffering servant in chapter 53, a servant that comes for the salvation of God's people. We see how even after that, when they're going through exile, they, uh, they, are, they know that something's broken. They know that something needs to be restored. When they hear the prophecies from the prophets and they're going through wars and oppression, They know that something needs to be made right, that someone needs to come. There's a need for a savior. And even when the voice of God goes silent 400 years after the last word of the prophets, even during that time, it's a silence that cries out to God. Where are you? You promised us a savior. You promised us a savior. Doesn't matter how many years we have to go through. Doesn't matter how many generations have to come and go. 
doesn't matter how many wars and exile, oppression, doesn't matter how many of these things we have to go through, we're still holding on to this promise. You still hear the voice of the people crying out to God for their Savior. Now, this cry runs all throughout Scripture. This deep crying out to deep, where are you, God? Where is the promise offspring? This is a cry of humanity rising up to heaven. But that's only half of the story. This is the cry of humanity rising up to heaven. But there isn't just a cry rising up to heaven. There's also a growing cry coming down from heaven. One that preceded Genesis 3.15. As soon as Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, as soon as they ate from the fruit, it was worded in this way. Genesis 3.9. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? I'm going to move here. So when God asks a question, I hope you know that he's not asking for information. This is the God who knows everything. He's not actually asking for a location. He's not saying, Adam, where did you, where did you go? I, I left you right here. Where, where did you go? He's asking a much more profound, much deeper question. Where are you? This is the first question ever asked by God. Have you thought about that? The first question ever asked by an all-knowing God. Where are you? are you? It's not for information. It is not to know exactly where they were. Embedded in this question is of where are you is God's cry of longing to be with us. I long to be with you. It isn't just where did you go? It is where, where did you go? We were one. We were communing together. We were in perfect fellowship together. I long to be with you. And this cry from heaven is a deep crying out to deep. The deep responding to our deep of where are you, God? Where's the promised offspring is met by God's, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Where are you, my people? Now we go on to Genesis 28. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. This is a promise that is given in Genesis chapter 28. It foreshadows a time when they will no longer be separated. And this is spoken to God's people, particularly to Jacob, who is on a journey. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses and the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness, my my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. I will promise to be there with you. He tells the Israelites as they set up the tabernacle in Leviticus 26, a tent of meeting with the Lord. He says, I will make my dwelling among you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. In Deuteronomy 31, he reminds them as they face their enemies occupying the the promised land, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. In Judges 6, he reminds Gideon, uh, who will fight a war on behalf of God's people. And the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. He reminds them when they're going through prophetic songs in Tabernacle of David in Psalm 23. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. In Isaiah 7, he prophesies through Isaiah, uh, through Isaiah of God's promise to be with them. 
and gives himself the name Emmanuel. She will give birth, the virgin will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Again, in Isaiah 43, it says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now we go on to the minor prophets in Zephaniah 3. He says again, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Again in Haggai, all you people of the land, all you people of the land take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you for Emmanuel. And in the last book of the Old Testament, he promises. Sorry. They will be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, they will be mine. All throughout the scripture, this cry of God, this longing to be restored to his people once again. And even in the silence after the Old Testament ends, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, those 400 years, it's not just silence. It's almost like a silence that is pregnant with promise. You still hear God's longing. You still hear God's desire to be with his people long after the prophets have stopped writing. And then finally, God breaks the silence, and the New Testament opens up with the most beautiful verse of all, and it reads, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Man's cry of where are you, God, is met by God's longing cry, where are you, Adam, where are you, Eve, where are you, my people? And God answers these longings for restored oneness And communion, once again, not through a written word, not through a spoken word, but through the living word. So this is the wonder and mystery of God's wisdom and love and and compassion on mankind. When our sins consumed us, when darkness enveloped us, when hope seemed lost, God, Emmanuel, God with us, came down and dwelt among us. The God from eternity past, the God who knew no time, stepped into time in the form of a baby. The fullness of God and the fullness of man residing in one person, Jesus Christ. John 1 says it this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has ever been made. In him was life, and that life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, 
nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the beauty and the mystery, the perfection of God's wisdom. This is the extent of his great compassion. This is how his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So much greater, so much more profound, so much more perfect than we ever thought it could be. This is the beauty of Christmas. This is what we celebrate this year, this time of the year. That a God who owed us nothing, he chose to come down. To people who are broken, he chose to come down. For people who would never turn to him, he came down. For people who are dead in their transgressions, he came down. He is God, Emmanuel. God was with us, not just in a spiritual kind of way, not just, hey, don't be lonely kind of way. He came in the form of a man, the man Jesus Christ.